look at what you're binging on and work backwards from that. So if you're binging on foods that are really high in energy, maybe your energy needs weren't met in the day. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, before we get started, I'd like to share with you this review from a listener called Kendo12 on the Apple Podcast platform. It's entitled, Actually Listened to a Podcast. Everyone always talks about podcasts and how wonderful they are, but it's never been my jam. Listening to things is harder for me, especially not having something to read along with. Well, the effort was well worth it. Very insightful and very enlightening in reminding me I am not alone in this different brain struggle. And I actually listened to all the episodes while binge listening at work in three weeks. Thank you, Katie, for this excellent resource in getting to know our wonderful but complicated brains. Well, thank you, Kendo. Believe me, I totally get how difficult it can be to just sit and listen. So I'm so glad you gave this podcast a chance and you found it helpful. And for the rest of you, if you've been listening to this podcast and you're enjoying these interviews, please take a moment to leave me a review so that other women can find this podcast and these conversations and know that they're not alone and they're not simply lazy, depressed, or broken, but that they have ADHD. And if stopping and putting your thoughts into words feels like too much right now, and believe me, I totally get that, you could also just stop and quickly hit the five stars. In fact, why don't you just do it right now? Pause. I promise we'll wait for you. Okay, here we are at episode 144, in which I interview Tara Brusso. Tara is a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor based in Australia. She runs an online private practice working with ADHD clients, helping them to gain clarity around eating and to stop dieting and binge eating for good. As an ADHDer herself, she understands that food, eating, and weight can be a turbulent experience for people living with ADHD. Her passion is helping people with ADHD find food freedom using a scientifically proven approach. Tara and I talk about the principles of intuitive eating and food freedom and how these concepts can often be misunderstood or rejected by people with ADHD. We also talk about common difficulties many of us experience with feeding ourselves, including sensory issues around food, executive dysfunction with meal prep and decision fatigue, the list goes on and on. We also talk about snack hacking and Tara's beautiful printable food lists. One of them is a visual aid for combining ordinary items in our pantry. I can't get over how wonderful it is. She also has a visual shopping list and really simple recipes. It's just fantastic. So make sure to go check out the link in the show notes. Also, she's offering 30% off the snack hacker when you use the code ADHDWomen30. So check it out. Tara also has an intuitive eating group course coming up very soon, and she's offering women and ADHD listeners a $300 discount. Yes, you heard that right, a $300 discount when you use the code ADHDWomen300, and you can find that link in the show notes as well. This was a lovely interview. Tara is just so charming. I can't wait for you to give it a listen. I know you will love it. Here we go. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Hello, Katie. It's such a pleasure to be joining you. I'm so excited. Um, Okay, so now I would love to just start out hearing about your diagnosis story. How long ago were you diagnosed with ADHD and what was happening in your life where you started to think I should really look into this? Well, I'm 30. How old am I? God, I'm 36 at the end of this year. And I, I think I have one of the rarest diagnosis stories ever. I was diagnosed when I was 21. So still a late diagnosis, but pretty early compared to most like diagnosis, diagnoses that I speak with. And I was at uni, I was studying nutrition and I was getting, you know, 90 and above for the units that I was interested in. And then I was struggling with units like chemistry where I wanted to learn, but I just couldn't take the information on board. So I'd just stare at my notes and then I'd highlight them and I (laughs) just wouldn't go in. And so I went to see my doctor because it was giving me quite a lot of anxiety. I thought that there might be something sort of wrong with me. Why can't I take on this information? And my GP she must have had ADHD herself or had some special interest in it because she said, I think you might have ADHD. And I was, I didn't know anything about it at that point. And I like the, you know, the typical idea people had or have of ADHD. I thought, no, that's for little boys with hyperactivity. That's not me. And she referred me to the psychiatrist. And after that appointment, he diagnosed with ADHD and he prescribed me with dexamphetamines, which you guys call Adderall, I think. And I used those for studying, but I didn't genuinely connect with the diagnosis. And I sort of thought I saw people around me using them sort of recreationally for studying, even when they weren't diagnosed. And I thought, oh, these just help everyone. So they had a profound effect on me, but I thought, oh, they just help everyone. And I didn't really believe that ADHD was a real thing and didn't really connect with it. And then fast forward to finishing uni and my grades sort of leveling out from taking medication and from, but actually that's all it was. I didn't even input any strategies except for that. And then I had my son, he's now five years old, but when he was two, I started to notice he's really different and his, his emotional regulation is really different from the other kids around us at play groups and mother's groups. And I sort of said to my husband, I, this doesn't feel like normal behavior. This feels way more intense. And then now he's five and he started school and he's been through two years of school and, and teachers have raised not concerns with us, but just said, you know, um, your son's learning is really different. And he is very hyperactive. He's extremely hyperactive. <laughs> and that made me start to look into ADHD more. And suddenly I was interested in it and believed that ADHD was a real sort of thing. And I learned, like most people are learning about myself through, you know, finding our community on TikTok and Instagram and, oh my God, no, really, that is a specific thing. Because before I sort of was like, oh yeah, symptoms, there's symptoms, but sort of like horoscopes, you could fit them to anyone. (laughs) They don't, they're not. And then once you start to find that community on on Instagram and TikTok, you realize, no, this is very specific to me. I've had this exact experience and I've told friends about this experience and they haven't understood. So I started to learn about myself. And then I realized I was, I wanted to work with ADHDers 
in regards to binge eating because it's such a big issue for ADHDers. And so I started a, an Instagram and it just automatically sort of fed the videos to TikTok. And I went on there one day and it was sort of blowing up for me anyway. <laughs> and from there, I've built a community around ADHD dietetics and I'm working with ADHDers um, in binge eating and it's my dream job. It's so fulfilling. So that's that's my story really. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I'm sure you were like, oh, that makes a lot of sense as to why I even went into nutrition and dietetics, right? That fascination, I think, that we have with food rules and getting it right and all of that obsessive behaviors with ADHD. For me, that was so fascinating. And just in terms of my own history with weight cycling and, and extreme dieting, and, I mean, all of that has been so interesting looking at my own history with that. And, and of course, binge eating through this ADHD lens where I'm like, oh, we are tailor-made audiences for the diet industry. <laughs> uh, 1,000 million percent, yes. <laughs> it's just we have no hope in hell <laughs> if we're living in this world of diet culture being thrown at us and if we are prone to that binge eating. It's really, really hard. No, we do have, we definitely have now, but to not feel in some way in our lives that that diet culture is impacting us, ADHD is just, it's so, and it's so prevalent, binge eating. It's so, so difficult for so many people. Right. Yeah. I mean, just disordered eating in general, I think is so much more prevalent among neurodivergence for so many reasons, right? Like it's, I, I find it really fascinating. So looking back besides the dietetics, was there, what were some of the other signs throughout your life, maybe as a kid that you were like, oh yeah, no, clearly the signs were there all along. I think definitely that pure empathy that I think a lot of ADHDers have where, you know, I'd be 10 years old in a room at a party and if one person was upset I was so honed in on that person and just wanted to make them feel better and I think I see that a lot of when I'm with my with a group of other ADHDers I notice that we're all sort of checking in with each other all the time to make sure that everyone's okay but then also I grew up being so embarrassed that people didn't want to tell me secrets because I would always tell everyone else as a child, you know, it'd be, I'd be the one to just, my impulse control is so low. It's like in one ear and I'm suddenly telling someone else. And now as an adult, I'm not ashamed of that. I sort of say like, if this is a really important secret and you have to weigh up whether you want my advice <laughs> or, or because I might, I won't intentionally tell anyone, but I, I find it really hard to remember that something's a secret because I'm so open myself. And I have this belief that, you know, obviously there are things that people need to keep private and I do respect that, but it's more like, I feel like we all need to be so much more open to make people feel that they're included and understood and that they see that other people are being affected by the same things. So I forget that things are secret, I guess. I forget that privacy is so important to some people. So that's definitely a thread, been a thread throughout my life, a lot of apologising like, oh, my God, did you not want anyone to know that? I, Okay, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You're right. You know, I feel like that is a, a very common quality amongst neurodivergence is is that openness. I think you explained it so well, because it's not just a carelessness, you know, and I really dislike the term oversharing for that same reason, because I'm like, there's what is oversharing, right? Like, I'm an open book, I will talk about very, very uncomfortable topics, like it's the weather, right? And, and so I've always 
I always had a lot of shame around the fact that I was so open and I always thought of myself as a as an oversharer. But now I look at it through this new lens and I'm like, no, actually, I think it's really it's a wonderful quality to be able to talk about things and, and talk about shameful things in a very matter of fact way, because I feel like it destigmatizes a lot of those things. A hundred percent. That's exactly how I feel. You just summed it up. Yes. Yep. But the the sharing secrets thing, I think, well, I think it's sort of like, on the one hand, you're right, I, I cannot keep any secrets. And I feel like one of the things that gets me into trouble sometimes with the podcast, because I'm such an open book, is that I talk about my family. And I'm always like, where do I end? Where does end my family's privacy begin? Because I have to be really careful about that stuff. Same. And, and I made, uh, honestly, my husband, who is so, so He's an extremely private person. He's at the other end of the spectrum and he just made the huge mistake of marrying me with my, <laughs> with my oversharing. <laughs> and he doesn't see it as a mistake, but often it's like, you told that person about such and such. I'm like, oh, my gosh, were we not? You have to remind me that <laughs> I almost, he's in, in the past he's sort of, given me a pep talk before we go in. So just remember that we don't, we're not talking about this yet. And I'm like, okay, that's right. Okay, good. I know, right? <laughs> because we're <I'm>, not sure. <laughs> I've had that on episodes where we talk about sex and ADHD, where I have to go up to him and be like, can I talk about this time? And he's like, no, of course not. I'm like, okay, I'm glad I checked. Uh, but then I have to tell the person I'm interviewing, like I have to warn them and be like, this is really hard for me. Like, I'm going to have a really hard time not talking about my personal experiences. Um, so if I do, like, we're going to have to cut it off or something. <laughs> because it just tumbles out of you, right? It's so, it's like the, it's the impulsivity element too, where it's like, I don't even think. And next thing I know, it's out of my mouth. And then I'm sort of like, and then you get the hangover, right? The next day where you're after the conversation where you're like, I cannot believe I just shared all of that with this relative stranger. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to think I'm so strange but most of the time people come to you later on and say like you've made me feel so seen and and I've never heard someone you know be so open about these things and it makes me want to share and that's a really special moment as well and it reinforces that it's okay to be open and to share experiences it's I yeah that whole privacy thing I I really struggle with the concept of that in general. I just think it's who are we protecting? And in the past we've been private, you know, historically privacy has not protected people. And so it's it's important to find the right balance. Yeah, I think that a lot about social media. And we're just going to be totally off the rails now with this conversation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I love it because it's like I, I think about that a lot with social media too because in, just in terms of how much of people's lives ends up being very public. And I'm like, it's great. There is a lot of destigmatization with a lot of issues. And I think it's really important. But then I'm also like, I'm really grossed out by the performative elements of social media where people are like filming themselves hugging their kids or like filming themselves crying where I'm like, why did we did we really need to see that? Like, I don't know, I get very uncomfortable with all of the I, I think it might be a generational thing. I think people who are like millennials are uh, you know, I'm 40, I'm going to be 49 this year. So I'm definitely like well into a different generation of social media. So I'm like, maybe there's just generations that are more comfortable with that. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know, because I, I've always felt like part of my ADHD is having a radar for things that are inauthentic. And I just, I can't stand that inauthenticity. And it just makes me so, it cr makes me cringe so much. So I, 
I'm a, I'm a millennial and I feel exactly the same. Like I, I, I just think, who's holding the camera while you're crying? Because when I'm crying, like I'm in my bed, like, like, like with the pillow over my head, like just I'm, I'm not thinking about my phone and angles and filters. I'm, I'm right. I know exactly. I, okay. I, you're right. I think it is. I think it is all about authenticity and how that really is something that's important to us in, in so many ways. Uh, but yeah, right. That's the first thing I always think about when I see these videos. I was like, at what point did you stop and say, I should film this? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very awkward unless it was on already. And then I don't know, I, I can't see how it would be organic. I really can't. And it does. It gives me the ick. Like it's not. Ugh. Yeah, but I think there is a fine line between like showing real life, quote unquote, you know, in terms of like we're not, we don't want to have this beautifully curated social media feed where we're only showing the happy moments, but also it, you're right, like just gross. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's get back to uh, talking about food. So I want to talk about intuitive eating because I think. Intuitive eating, oftentimes when somebody has been dieting their whole lives, right, especially somebody with ADHD who is, has just been like following food rules their whole life and getting, you know, and feeling frustrated and weight cycling and all of the stuff that comes with a life of disordered eating and dieting. And then it's like intuitive eating oftentimes I think is presented or understood as just releasing all rules, right? And 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 then it becomes sort of chaotic feeling where it's like, I feel lost. You know, a lot of, I feel like a lot of neurodivergents fear intuitive eating or they just like decide that it's not for them because they're like, well, that's, I can't live with no rules. I'll just eat everything in sight and blah, blah, blah. Like there's all that fear that has come from dieting. So I can we just like backtrack a little bit and can you just explain the concept of intuitive eating from, you know, within an ADHD lens? Yeah, so intuitive eating is basically listening to your hunger and fullness cues. It sounds like you have a really good understanding, but for the listeners, it's it's going back in and listening, building interoceptive awareness, so that awareness of your gastrointestinal tract. So interoception is, you know, when we feel heat, when we feel cold, our emotions, how our body is feeling and reacting to things. And and a big part of intuitive eating is learning to go inwards and be able to feel those feelings again. And I always say to my clients, most of us have a really good understanding or trust in the lower end of our gastrointestinal tract. You know, we know if we're, sorry, I'm a dietitian, but I'm going to talk about poo. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about poo. Um, we know if we need to open our bowels. Or release our bladder. We know the difference there. Um, we know if we've got diarrhea. We know if we're constipated. We know that if we've got a big one coming or if it's a small one. We we have this, this real understanding and connection to that and we don't question it. Whereas when with the same gastrointestinal tract but a little bit higher up, when we're thinking about our stomach and our gut and where food's being processed, that has been so interfered with by external factors that we turn the volume down on that and we can't hear that anymore. Whereas with our bowel movements, no one challenges those for the for the majority of people. No one's going, oh, my gosh, do you go to the toilet five times a day? That's weird. I only go three times. And we go, oh, well, I better start going when Sally goes to the toilet so that I can be like her and have her body. We don't think like that, but when it comes to eating, we do, and it's changing all the time, and so we lose touch with those, with those hunger fullness cues. 
Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Actually, it reminded me of my son when, and I don't know if you've had this experience with your son, but I do think that interoception doesn't come easily to somebody with ADHD, even at the beginning. And I remember when he was younger, you know, all of those things that are sort of typical kid things where you're like, okay, go to the bathroom before we get in this car ride. And then they're like, no, I'm fine. I don't have to go. And then as soon as you start driving, they're like, oh my God, I have to go now. Right. That urgency. Like I remember having to intentionally teach my son how to pay attention to early signs because I think, and even as an adult, like we have a tendency, you know, talking about bladders, like I feel like that's one of those jokes that we have with ADHD, which is like, we have a tendency to ignore our bladders until it's really, really loud because we're distracted. So the way that you've just described it in terms of like, it's not something Thing that necessarily is going is, is instinctual, that there is something that you have to work on. And like, what does that look like? Yes. So, and ADHDers often have reduced interoceptive awareness. Like we, we often struggle a lot more and that's why intuitive eating can feel even harder for people with ADHD. But I also um, have worked in the past with clients that don't have ADHD and many, many people in that in the neurotypical group also struggle with that interoceptive awareness, but we do have to work that a little bit harder. But basically, firstly, working with a health professional, and that's not just me plugging myself, that's genuinely you need a set of guidelines because another thing with ADHD is that 
we feel safe in diets because it gives us that structure. It's in the same way that we buy diaries, you know, and then we don't use them. But for the first day that you buy it, you're like, I feel safe in this. This is going to be my brain and this is going to do it for me. And that's that set of rules feels so safe to an ADHD because we often feel like we're doing it wrong. And so if we say, okay, well, this person's telling me exactly how to eat um, and we have low you know, trust in ourselves and low self-esteem. So to have to have that pressure of of having all of the food control of food on us is is a huge amount of pressure compared to the the average person. Um, but you need to work with a health professional that does give you guidelines so that you ease out of dieting and you slowly go into intuitive eating and it it doesn't feel like this going very, very controlled to complete food freedom. It's not as simple as that. And it's not as simple as you have to work through it in in specific stages. And we first have to make sure that we're eating regularly so that we can even start to notice those hunger and fullness cues. And we need to make sure that we're eating the right variety of macronutrients and, and have a dietitian help us with that. So it's not, there'll be no measuring and no no rules there and there's no shame and no judgment but you do need to be given guidelines so that you can actually start to listen again and you need to do specific food challenges and a dietitian will guide you through that so that you feel safe in that. And then when you go, that didn't work, you come back to the dietitian and, you, and they say, well, firstly, there's no judgment. <laughs> We're not allowed to judge ourselves. We're just learning. I like to say to my clients that a lot of it's experimenting because we often don't have a very strong relationship with food. And so to go to go back and have a non-judgmental approach to food, sometimes it's just an experiment to go like, how does Katie's body feel when she eats raisins on their own? Is that what you guys call them, raisins? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and or or how does she feel when she has you know raisins and cashews? How does she feel an hour later? And and doing that for a few days and working out that it sounds very tedious, but just like driving a car, when you first do it, you're like, okay, my blinkers here, and and I've got to make sure I'm in gear, and I've got to do all of these things. And then one day you find yourself driving home, and and you didn't even know how you got there because it's just it's that muscle memory. So. Yes, there is this learning process, but yes, there is this learning process, but we, you're doing this conscious work, putting the information into your subconscious, and then suddenly you're doing it on autopilot. Yeah, no, I think that then intuitive eating isn't just chaos, right? That it is, there is some structure there. There is some scaffolding, which I think, like you said, I love how you said it was felt safe, right? Because I think you're right. I think dieting did feel safe for a lot of us when it came to the feeling like we had control. And and a lot of this comes down to like feeling chaotic in our lives. What are some quick, easy things we can control in our life? Food, eating, weight, all of those things become, that's where we turn very quickly. And so, um, you know, having struck, I think that it's important to, to note that intuitive eating isn't just chaos and like no diet rules, that it is actually like a very structured approach, which can really uh, be helpful uh, with, like you said, with guidance. It's not just like, I'm going to stop dieting because then you're really still dieting. You're just in like cheat mode. Yes. I also like to say to people that 
because people think that when they start eating intuitively or if they have no food rules that nothing is kind of going to control the amount of food that goes into their body well that's not true we don't want to focus on control because control has this negative stigma associated with it but your body's controlling that your body knows when it's had enough of a certain food if you tune into it you'll know it's just that you don't feel the need to eat past that feeling of satisfaction because you've worked through a process to know that you can have that food again whenever you feel like that food. So the sadness of saying this is enough of this food isn't as strong because we don't feel that we have to eat it all because we're never going to have it again. And that's, you know, we sort of have these funerals for food when we're dieting. We go, I'm never eating chocolate again. So I better eat as much chocolate as I can because I'm, I'm so emotional. I'm never going to eat this food again. Taking those emotions out and just saying, no, I'm just going to stop eating the chocolate because it's too sweet in my mouth now. And my body is telling me that that's enough. And then sitting through that, but knowing that you can have that food again, is the way that you that's the cycle where you know that that restriction is always the root of binging we're always if you if you're binging there's always some restriction somewhere that we need to work on and it's interesting there's so many different kinds of restriction that people have both mental and physical right exactly and i think that was a big one for me with my own binge eating journey was realizing that even if I wasn't restricting my food, I was making decisions that were emotionally restrictive decisions uh, in terms of why I was reaching for certain foods. So even though I, you know, gave myself unlimited access to fruits and vegetables and wasn't counting the Weight Watchers points anymore, you know, although those were always free for all my Weight Watchers people out there, they, they'll they call, they'll be like, don't be ridiculous. Those are free. Uh, but, you know, this idea of like thinking of food in terms of points, um, or caloric value and stuff. Um, I got all tumbled up. Hold on. So anyway, my point is I had to really like think about why am I reaching for this food? Right. So, um, you know, am I eating a salad because I'm craving fruit vegetables and I want greens and I don't want something hot and I want something crunchy. Like I have to like, think about, am I making this decision for my health or am I choosing this because of control or weight or some sort of other restrictive decision? And, and so that was like, that was took years for me to figure like to do that, without having to really think about doing it, like to have that kind of be part of my food choices, right? And so I think that's also a muscle that we have to build when we are untangling from diet culture, which is like, why am I making this decision? Is it for my, is it healthful or is it about weight and control? Yes. And and a, an important question that people don't ask themselves is, is this food going to be pleasurable for me? Because we have this idea of, if a food, the the things that usually bring pleasure in a food or in a meal as being not as healthful for us. And so it's really that 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 leaves an unmet need when things we don't get pleasure from that meal. And I think one of the things we work on a lot in the small group coaching that I do is is making sure that the meal is balanced, but also that it provides that satisfaction. And it's mo- it's layered with ADHD as it's like, do you need crunchy foods? Do you need that deep pressure in, you know, you're having a sandwich, but that's going to be quite soft. Do you need some chips alongside that? And it's so scary for people to think of having a sandwich and thinking, oh, a salad sandwich is going to be 
quote unquote healthy. I can't, if I have chips with that, then that's going to ruin the the health of the meal. But in actual fact, that provides that pleasure aspect and also gives you that sensory input. And you'll find more than likely that you won't be binging at 9pm at night because your needs were met. So yeah, it's, it's very layered with ADHD as but the breakthroughs that my clients have, it's so satisfying to watch. And for myself going through the process, I at first thought, oh, this is very sort of woo-woo and hippy-dippy and, and I, you know, it's, it, but the science is there and, and it's the breakthrough, breakthroughs that you see, it's really beautiful to, to witness. I, yeah. Now, uh, when you're working with clients, one of the things that so many of us experience is unintentional restriction throughout the day, right? And that's something I struggle with a lot, which is literally avoiding eating for for a lot of the day because it's decision making, it's decision fatigue, it's distraction. Uh, it also often makes my may tired, right? It creates the the serotonin after eating that often like I want to stay in my manic productive state as long as possible. So I just drink coffee. And then next thing I know, it's 4pm and I'm ravenous. Uh, you know, and so like, that's what I struggle with the most too, is that unintentional <laughs> restriction, which but I also don't want to eat breakfast because I feel like I really like that manic state of of empty stomachness, right? And so I see why so many people in the ADHD community have embraced uh, intermittent fasting, right? Because it's like, well, this is gives me the a okay to do it, and then I, you hear these, you know, and then you hear these suggestions where it's like, no, that's not great, it's not good. But why is it not good? Like you know, like I I, I really struggle between feeling like. Um, the intuitive eating side of me that's like, well, whatever works for you is great versus always feeling like I'm doing something wrong or harmful by just being my natural self. (laughs) And I feel like even that statement is so ADHD, right? Which is like, why I feel like what's wrong with me because my instincts feel wrong, right? Um, But that's something I think a lot of us experience is the unintentional restriction. Yeah. And then medication restriction. Right. And of course, right. Medication. And then, but the fear that it leads to binge eating or the medication wears off, we're ravenous at the end of the day. And so then we binge eat. So, yeah. So my answer is, of course, two pronged. <laughs> I've ADHD. <laughs> um, but firstly, Katie, if it works for you to not eat during that time, and if you do feel good genuinely, if that's feeling good in your body, and if you've gone through an intuitive, intuitive eating phase of learning and working on that and you do know what your hunger and fullness cues look like and that's what feels good and then you're not feeling like you're binging. And when I say binging, there's no negative association with that. It's just, and there shouldn't be judgment there, but it's just eating past the point that makes you feel comfortable. So I don't I don't want it to be a dirty word binging but if you feel that you're in the evening which is what happens with a lot of my clients they say I'm in, I'm intermittent fasting and my immediate thought is and now they're going to tell me they binge at night <laughs> and then they go and I'm binging at night if you're not finding that that's happening and if it feels good for you like you said I'm going against my nat- what my body naturally wants to do and if that helps you then that's absolutely fine and and if you if you don't feel that you're needing any kind of help with that. The second part of it is that just because we might not be physiologically hungry, 
even if we have practice intuitive eating and we're quite in touch with our hunger and fullness, it doesn't mean necessarily that our body is not biologically hungry. So we will, our body does need to maintain its blood glucose. We need to stay in homeostasis. Our brain needs glucose coming in all the time. So, and all bodies are different and some people can go longer periods without that. But if we're binging at night, it can be a sign that our body just didn't get what it needed throughout the day. And so it's responding in a way that it's saying, get me really quick energy. And that's going to be refined carbohydrates and refined fats because because our bodies are clever. You know, if if it's really hungry, it wants to have something that's absorbed really quickly into the system. And so it's going to crave, our bodies are going to crave things like ice cream, chocolate, those foods aren't necessarily going to make us feel great if we use them to fill the hunger gap, but we might be so hungry that we can't make decisions around what would balance that out. Maybe some chocolate and, you know, a meal of rice and protein and and salad, we're not going to make that decision. We're just going to go straight for the food that's going to give us that energy because we've left ourselves way too hungry. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, I always think of binge eating also as that the feeling of being out of control in terms of when the end is too, right? Like it never, for me, it was never an amount of food. It was just that feeling of like, I can't stop, right? Like I cannot stop. There's something in me and that makes me still want to grab for more food. And that's where I always think of like, okay, well, what, like you said, like, what is your body lacking? What is your body? It's almost like your body takes over in those moments, uh, which can be wonderful because I think there's, those are a lot of opportunities to think about like, okay, well, what does my body really need right now in this moment that it's searching for? Like you said, I'm looking for really, really refined sugars and fats and and also, you know, I, I work with a lot of clients who feel terrible about all the sugar they eat at night. And I'm like, well, you're eating sugar at night. I mean, your body is trying to fuel itself to stay awake. So what if you just went to bed? <laughs> but like listening to those, like, like you said, like trying to sort of think of our bodies as sending us messages in terms of what we crave and why I think can be really helpful in terms of how we I don't know. I think as somebody with ADHD, we tend to like really look, it, it's really helpful for us to look at like problems to be solved. Right. And as opposed to feeling like we are the problem. And so, um, I find it really helpful to be like, Oh, it's interesting that I always crave chocolate after a meal. So what is that? What is my body telling me? My body is telling me that it's tired and sluggish because it's digesting. And so the chocolate would be a fuel that would sort of get me past that. And I'm like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, body. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I, I often say to clients to look at what you're binging on and work backwards from that. So if you're binging on foods that are really high in energy. We don't demonize foods. There's no negative thing associated with that, but maybe your energy needs weren't met in the day. Or if you're binging on foods that very obviously trying to meet sensory needs, like very crunchy foods, and you're sitting there and you can't stop with something that's extremely crunchy and you're eating past past fullness or satisfaction, that could be a sign that your sensory needs aren't met for the day. Looking at it from that angle can really help people. Go, oh yeah, actually, mine. Or, or if you're eating foods that provide that the main focus is just that pleasure, and you're thinking, oh, this ice cream is so smooth and delicious. Maybe you're not getting enough pleasure throughout the week or throughout the day in your meals, and you're just craving that 
pleasurable experience from food, which is our right. It's our right to have pleasurable experiences with food all the time. It's not something that we just have to save up for on the weekend. And when we do that, we usually only have a very small one and then feel a lot of guilt and, yeah, so it doesn't work anyway. The sensory stuff, I think, is so important to to think about in terms of, like, I talk about mouthfeel a lot with my husband, and he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I just <laughs> can't have that in my mouth right now. <laughs> he's like, what? Or safe foods, too, right? Like, we talk about safe foods. And also... Oh, executive dysfunction, right? Like, I think that's the other thing that a lot of us, I certainly struggle with, which is like, I, you know, one of my pet peeves is when somebody says like, this is a really easy recipe. And it's like, get out a pan and start chopping onions. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you've lost me already. (laughs) I'm not chopping it, right? I'm like, my idea of an easy meal is literally just eating peanut butter out of the jar. Like sometimes that's where my executive function is for the day. So Peanut butter hand, yeah. I know, we call it a a (laughs) cheese on hand sandwich. (laughs) And that is a perfectly balanced snack, to be fair. But nuts contain carbohydrates, protein, and fat. That's um, perfectly balanced. <laughs> well, again, right? It's sort of like, am I am I thinking about, you know, am I getting what I need, right? Which I think is why it brings me to the snack hacker, which is brilliant. Um, I, I love it. I'm so excited. And I'm going to definitely put a link to it in the show notes because I actually have something like that, but it's not visual. It's just written for my kids on the inside of our pantry for when they get home, um, where I'm just like, here are ideas of carbohydrates and proteins to mix. Uh, and I use it myself more than they do because it's like, oftentimes we get into that just fog of like, I'm hungry. I open the fridge. I close the fridge. I wander around. I open the pantry. Nope. You know, and then next thing you know, you're like, I guess I'll just eat this box of crackers plain because I have no, like, it's just fatigue or what, like, you just can't make decisions. And so uh, the snack hacker is so brilliant. I'm so excited that it exists. Um, what, where did it come from? Was it just your own brilliant brain? How do I answer that without saying yes? (laughs) (laughs) By all means. Well, let's explain what it is. First of all, just, okay. So let's talk about what the snack hacker is. So it's just examples of there's one column that has proteins and one column that has carbohydrates and basically just matching one to the other just so that you're bright. And it's all visual. So there's actual pictures pictures of the food. It's so pleasing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't think it was going to be that groundbreaking and then, but it really was helpful for me. And I thought I'm going to make this visual because, you know, this is how I would want to see it. And then I just thought I'm going to put it out there. I was really nervous to put it out. And then, yeah, people really loved it. And I felt so privileged to be on people's fridges and in their cupboards. And yeah, it, it, I don't know where it came from. It just was born out of me wanting it myself and knowing that my ADHD clients would really benefit from having it, you know, in the course. Um, and then I thought, oh, well, I might make this available to more people because I don't just want it to be there for people that are doing intuitive eating. I think a lot of ADHDers would, or most ADHDers would benefit from something like that. Right. Yeah. And well, I, I, it does. I think it just speaks to so much of what we were talking about in terms of like working memory. Like even if the food is in your house, you forget it exists. Right. And just, you forget that you can pair foods. Like that's the other thing, which is like sometimes at, with ADHD, you just simply forget that like 
you can put peanut butter on toast and be like, oh, I have both of those things. That's wonderful. (laughs) Like it speaks to so much of the complicated executive dysfunction issues that we have a hard time articulating to other people because they're like, what? Everything's in your house. What's the problem? And you're like, I don't know where to begin. Uh, So just seeing the visuals of these two things, how they can go together. It's yeah, it's just it is wonderful. Oh, Katie, thank you so much. You're amazing. I didn't even, yeah, that's so wonderful that you found that and that you like it. I feel so privileged. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, well, and it's funny because I've talked about it with uh, with some of my clients because of the thing that I have with my own kids with just the list because I would never just have the, you know, I'd, it never occurred to me to make visuals, but it's so much more appealing. And um, yeah, just to have it printed and stick it on your fridge or whatever. It's great. And you have a couple of other downloads too, right? You've got the um, the visual food shopping list. Yeah, I made the food shopping list. It's basically for when your brain is just in one of those broken modes. So everything that is on that one page will either trigger you for things that are really essential. So like dog food if you don't have that your dog won't eat kind of thing or your medications and it just triggers those things but then also all the foods they all lead into food suggestions so there's no recipes because I feel that that's overwhelming for ADHDers people with ADHD always ask me for recipes and then they come back and they're like I didn't make that and I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna stop giving recipes unless they're one pot but it just gives ideas of meals and it's again visual so if the meal was a pasta dish it would show the pasta what vegetable to use and they would all be the vegetables and and meat and pasta or there's vegan and vegetarian shopping lists as well but yeah they'd all lead into those meals so right and I think that's another thing that I feel like we could do our part as ADHDers to destigmatize eating chickpeas in a bowl right or or eating peanut butter on a spoon because a lot of the time that is what your body needs and like we do crave that really really simple the flavor simplicity too, a lot of the time, right? Which is like, we don't necessarily need to have an incredibly well-balanced tabbouleh that we're making ourselves every week. Like a lot of the times my meals do consist of a can of tuna (laughs) and a piece of toast, right? Absolutely. And that's fine. And I often say to ADHDers, if you want to eat like a kid, then eat like a kid. (laughs) Because we have these rules in society that an adult can't have like some crackers and cheese and cut up carrots. But I found throughout my life that when people would serve food to kids, that appealed to me so much more because the vegetables are all separate and they're not, (laughs) things aren't touching. And it just, it just appeals to me. Like I can handle foods touching and I, you know, but it just appeals to my brain that everything's in its, you know, place. And they're really simple and, you know, not over the top spicy foods and things like that. I like them in context, but yeah, it just, makes it feel simple and it's okay to eat like a kid. It's absolutely fine. I have so many ADHDs that like, ba- are like basically I have Lunchables for my lunch. And I'm like, good. Do you, Lunchables, is that? Yeah, yeah. A known thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's fine. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. Right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is why I'm a big fan of meal kits <clears throat> because I just, I've even before I was diagnosed with ADHD, I often would use meal kits when I was cooking. Now I've, most of the time, my husband does the cooking because he loves it. But um, I've really been a big fan of meal kits because there's just very clear rules to follow. And, um, and I, for some reason, I can get past my own executive dysfunction when it comes to meal kit recipes. 
recipes. I don't know what it is, but it, it's really fascinating to me because recently my husband was out of town and I didn't have a meal kit delivery set up. And I, so I reached out to my community and was like, I need ex- ideas for recipes. Otherwise I'm going to get takeout for five days in a row. And I can't do that to my poor kids. So I was like, can anybody recommend some really, really basic recipes? And they, people kept recommending recipes. And I had to be like, I don't think I have fully explained the depths of my executive dysfunction where I was like, I cannot have multiple pans going at the same time. Like I, I was sort of like, I can't have too many steps. And I was like, I can boil water, but like beyond that, I can't have too many things happening at once. So I kept being like, nope, more basic, nope, more basic. And then I was like, really, is it just, are there cans I can dump in an Instant Pot was really what I ended up with. (laughs) Yeah, that's and that's fine. I think, yeah, we don't need to have so much pressure on ourselves around those things. And it's absolutely fine to have, to only be able to do those steps like that. I think with the, with the meal kits, do your meal kits have visual recipes? They do. Actually, I think that's really helpful because the other thing I really like is that they want to, you know, and I've talked to my husband about this because one of his his dream projects is to come up with like more ADHD friendly recipe books, because one of the things that really frustrates me with recipe books is they don't they don't go through very explicitly like how much to prep and chop things ahead of time. And that's been such a game changer is the fact that you have to do all of that ahead of time. You have to like pre-measure because I get to those states where I'm like, I don't read ahead. And then suddenly I'm like, something's on, you know, on a pan. And then it's like, add the cumin. And I was like, what? Oh God, I have to go find it. Right. And then I burn it. And so you know, and and my husband was like, well, no, you measure all of that before you've even begun. And I was like, I don't think that way. I follow the first step and I don't think ahead. And then next week, like I just hit the ground running with recipes. And so one of the things I like about meal kits is they are very explicit before you even start. They're like, do all this chopping. And and most of the things are often pre-measured too. So yeah, that's, that's right. (laughs) And they have that real obvious, oh, that's how the carrot's meant to be chopped. So there's no room for interpretation. And and there's not as much thinking that it's great with the meal kits. And I do think a, yeah, tell your husband to let me know if he does that because I'd love to be involved in some way. That's amazing. And I think it's really important for ADHDers to find some recipes that they really love and it will be tricky doing them for the first few times but to almost do them so many times that they just just two or three recipes that they build muscle memory around that that recipe so that it it's an autopilot recipe and that does happen i've done it myself where i've you know i have a cake recipe that's just stored in my head where i can make this one egg chocolate cake from when i was i think 14 years old and i can make it on autopilot i don't even really have to measure things because that's the adhd brain right we can i mean, i feel that a lot of adhds can measure with their eyes and and can recognize those things if they do them enough times and so i can make this without even doing too much work but having really thinking to yourself, this is going to be something that I'm going to put the effort into learning the steps over and over and over again, make it sort of once a month or once a fortnight until it's an autopilot recipe to kind of keep me, you know, like you said, when your husband went away and you felt really sort of overwhelmed, but you'd have these in your back pocket to know that you could make. And it's ideal if you can kind of change out a few of the ingredients so that it can, it's not always the same, but yeah finding an autopilot recipe or putting some effort into creating one auto, one or two autopilot recipes is a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pinterest is great for that. 
Oh, I remember I, when I was younger, I spent a summer in Sri Lanka. And so I was taught a lot of uh, Sri Lankan and South Indian cooking and like they don't use measuring spoons or anything. And I, it's so funny how much of that stayed with me. I really enjoy cooking like pot meals where you're basically adding flavor based on you, you know, tasting it and being like, what does this need? And they always had these really great, you know, like you would measure your finger to the first knuckle for how much water goes in with pasta and all of that and rice. And it was so much. And I was like, now I realize I'm like, oh, that's so much more friendly to my brain uh, and why baking is so hard for me because baking is so exact and so many rules and like, you know, and I, you know, was trying something the other day where I was dipping a measuring cup into flour and my husband was like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You want to weigh it because the dipping of the flour, the measuring cup, like compresses the flour too much. And then you get it, you get it. I know. And I was like, I quit. (laughs) Like I'm done. Yeah. Have to have a physics degree to no, I, I know, <laughs> right? Uh, but he loves that stuff. Uh, yeah, and so it's so funny to me. Like my daughter and my husband love the exactness of baking, and I'm just like way too chaotic. I'm like, no, I, I'm like, I, I love being able to just like improvise as I go along. Yeah, and and that's where your autopilot recipe for something like cookies would be like a Anzac recipe where you're like. It's just got to be sticky enough at the end to work. And then you can you can be creative with it. That's what I encourage ADHDs to do is find recipes that are really lenient and that you find you can be a little bit creative with because also doing the same thing over and over again hurts our brain. So just finding that thing that doesn't have as much pressure on it and, and kind of works out every time, the foolproof things. <laughs> or find a partner who cooks for you. That's my advice too. Or find a partner that cooks for <laughs> you. That's also great. Uh, I love talking about food and ADHD. I think it's so many of us are so confounded by our relationships with food. And I think so many of us, especially when you bring weight and we didn't even get to talk about like weight stigma and doctors and the, you know, the overwhelming pressure to, to lose weight as a way of achieving health, I think is a whole other, we could have, I could have you back for a whole other episode about that. <laughs> um, so you have a group coaching program as well. How can people find you? Okay, well, I'll, I'll definitely have a link to all of your downloadables because they are so beautiful and wonder, and it's such a great idea. So I'll definitely have a link to that. But yeah, then you also have a group coaching program, right? Yes. Yeah, I do 12-week group coaching programs, small group coaching programs that I run a few times a year. And they are my... Absolute passion. It's just so beautiful to have a group of people come together and we we go through the steps of intuitive eating and through the lens of ADHD and getting in tune with your body and finding food freedom and feeling that confidence to not have to live inside diet culture's rules anymore. And, yeah, I'm actually running another group really soon. So I'll be putting out the wait list for that. And yeah, I'm really excited to to continue doing that because it's it's such a beautiful experience to be a part of. Honestly, I feel so privileged when I work with women and see their changes and yeah. Right. And I think it's also just a reminder that it's not, I think people feel very stubborn about getting help around intuitive eating because they feel like intuitive eating should be freedom and no rules, right? And how important it is to really have professional guidance on this journey that it really, you know, that because otherwise I think you just end up 
frustrated. And like I said, that's kind of the, you're still in diet mode. Um, you're just in the, I'm failing at diet mode, part of dieting here <laughs> in weight cycling for people with ADHD, especially I think community and help and, and continued support, I think is such a really important for us. So, yeah. Yes. Which is what we have in, in the program. So there's a Slack channel and people love that because they can stay on there for as long as they all want to and support each other after the program's finished, which is absolutely amazing. And I think going back to your last point, what people don't realize is that food freedom, there shouldn't be any food rules, so you shouldn't need help with it. But you don't realize the amount of stuff that you have to unlearn because of the culture that we live in and how much, how hard it is to unlearn those rules. You know, it's a difficult process to do on your own and it's so great to do it with other people and to have that support because there's there's a lot of weight stigma out there and there's and intuitive eating isn't as widely known as people think it is. In the States it's a lot more widely known, but in Australia it's really fresh and so many people I explain it to. I think there's one in 20 people that I talk to know kind of what it is. So to have other people that understand and can support you through that process and you can go, oh, my God, do you know what someone said to me today? <laughs> and everyone to go, it's okay, just remember that's coming from you know, their own family history of food rules and, you know, to have that support is so important. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I feel like in my own diet recovery journey over the years, I always felt like Australia was like at the forefront of body positivity. And I, I think it's because the um, Embrace documentary was so huge for me when I saw that years ago. And it was such, it was so pivotal and, and, um, seminal for me. And I, I'm, and why am I forgetting her name? Oh God. Um, I am too. I was just, I was like, I need to say her name. Uh, just look it up really quick. It starts with T and I can't think of it. Brum, Brumfit is her surname. Brumfit, Tara Brumfit, right? It is also Tara. Yeah. Taryn, Taryn, I think it is Taryn. Taryn Brumfit. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'll put a link to that documentary. It's so, it comes and goes on Netflix in the US, but like, I don't know. I've always thought of Australia as being like so much more reasonable in terms of body positivity than the US when it comes to diet culture. Maybe we are in terms of body positivity, but when it comes to food, yeah. there's not that same understanding. It's the intuitive eating part. It's the, oh, okay, maybe maybe what I eat doesn't define who I am as much as I thought it did. Or maybe the way I eat is not my fault, you know. Maybe there's something more to this. Vegemite, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely an acquired taste. I know. It's delicious <laughs> and I will die on this hill. <laughs> it really is, honestly. Food doesn't just... define who I am and I'm like... <clears throat> Uh, excuse me. <laughs> it's the ratios. The Americans just don't understand the ratios, Katie. It's, it's true. We can't have anything. In, we can't have anything in like small amounts. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so lovely to chat with you. I, I wanted to ask if you had, a, did you have a name for ADHD? If you could call it something else. Okay. So I thought about this and I talked to my husband about it earlier and I wouldn't change the name. I have had, because of my son, and I've been talking about him possibly being neurodivergent to people, and they say, oh, do you really want to label him with that? And my response is always, I think that people only say that when they think that the label 
is a negative thing and I don't believe ADHD is a negative thing. It makes certain things trickier for him, but there's so many things that are amazing about him and he is who he is and he has ADHD very likely. And, you know, if I said that he was exceptional at sport, if I gave him that label, no one would say, are you sure that you want to label him as that, you know? So I've always tried to be really positive about the ADHD label and I don't see the full words anymore in my head. I don't see attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I just see ADHD more as a symbol. Like it's more, it's just the acronym is a symbol to me that means so many things and it's really positive for me. And going forward when people respond like, oh, are you sure that you want to label him like that? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do because it's absolutely fine and beautiful for him to have ADHD. So yeah. That is, I love that response. It reminds me of like KFC. We don't call it Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. They just changed it to KFC. (laughs) Or Weight Watchers did the same thing, right? They were like, we're not Weight Watchers, we're WW. And you're like, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We still know. (laughs) I love that with a neurodivergence that prides itself on being messy and you know, feeling like we're not always saying the right thing, that our the description of what it is isn't correct. <laughs> like, I love that. It just feels like it fits. <laughs> we need a copy editor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the person didn't write it down right. <laughs> that, that makes complete sense to me. <laughs> oh, my God, I love that. Uh, <laughs> no, but it is really, it is sweet, like how much, uh, how what the word ADHD has become for us is really that's really sweet oh i like that answer thank you oh thank you so much yeah thank you tara it's been super wonderful so it's the underscore adhd underscore dietitian with a t not a c people um (laughs) (laughs) right yes and and that's both on instagram and tiktok i'll have i'll have um links to both of those But yeah, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. Oh, it's been a dream. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.